All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are live. Welcome to the Guide to Existence, where we explore the mitzvahs of Judaism and the Torah portion through the lens of Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, and the teachings of Hasidus. As always, I'm your host, Rabbi G. And let us begin. This week's Parsha is Parsis Shemini, which means eight. <clears throat> And there's a lot to talk about in this week's Parsha. This is actually one of my favorite Parshas. I'm going to be reposting some stuff from previous years where we talked about some of the very, very lofty spiritual concepts in the number eight and the relation of the number eight to the completion of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, which takes place in this week's Parsha. But this year, this week, now, we're going to focus on another specific part of the Parsha, which I believe we touched on last year as well, which is the laws of kosher animals. What animals can you eat and what animals can you not eat? So I want to go through some of these concepts and try to understand what they all have in common, what the messages are in the laws of kosher and what we can take with us from it. And if there's time at the end, we'll maybe throw in a little Kabbalah, okay? But right now we're going to just try and keep it simple and just go through, let's just run through the laws of kosher. But before we begin, I want to point out a few very interesting things in Rashi. The very first Rashi, as we begin this discussion, um, the Torah says, Hashem el Moshe, and God said to Moshe, Ve'el Aaron and Aaron, Lemor Lehem, saying to them, Dab Dabru el Israel, you should say to the Jewish people, Lamor, saying. So there's a lot of sayings here. Zois hachaya, this is the living things, asher tochlu, that you can eat. Mikol behem asher from all the animals that are on the earth. <clears throat> and then it begins to go through the different animals and the different signs of kosher animals. But the first thing that Rashi points out <clears throat> is the strange language of God said, saying and that they should say and more saying that it was given over <coughs> to Moshe and Aaron to give this over to the entire Jewish people. That this somehow, this Parsha, this concepts belong to the entire Jewish people. It's not just Moshe and Aaron who's teaching it. It's that they're giving it, they're like literally teaching the whole Jewish people to then in turn teach it themselves. So, what's the significance of that? <coughs> the, the Rashi says that the entire Jewish people are equal as being messengers in this particular mitzvah. Why? Um, next, Rashi says the language zois hachaya. This is the living things that you can eat. He says lashon chayim. Chayim means life, life force, because the Jewish people are attached to God, and therefore they're worthy of life. That somehow through the eating of kosher, we achieve life. And it doesn't mean, just mean physical life. Of course, you have to eat in order to be alive physically, but somehow that through the eating of kosher, we become spiritually alive as well. And I want to try to understand that concept as well. Um, and why is it that Jewish people have to keep kosher? Now, do non-Jewish people have to keep kosher? The answer is yes, they do. Non-Jewish people have one strong kosher thing and it's, it becomes an issue. Uh, I think it's a big issue for a non-Jew who wants to keep the Torah as a uh, one of the ben, B'nai Noach, the followers of the children of Noah who observed the seven mitzvahs of the nations of the world. One of them pertains to animals. Do you know what it is? that you can't eat a limb off of a living animal. It's called Aver Menachai. You can't just like see like a nice cow walking in the field. You can't just take a bite out of it. Now that might sound crazy. What do you mean? Who's doing that? The answer is it's done. First of all, there are African tribes who, who actually stick a straw into their goats and drink the blood. We don't drink blood, but the but non-Jews could drink blood. But out of a living animal, not allowed. Number two, 
in slaughterhouses, it's fairly customary to shoot the animal, non-kosher slaughterhouses, or stun the animal and cut it up. If the animal is not fully dead when you start cutting it up, you're taking limbs off of a living animal. So kosher applies, to, but but for Jews it's much more complicated. Why? Why specifically for Jews do we have? Does it matter so much what we eat? In fact, the Talmud says that um, non-Jews who eat certain certain animals are actually more their bodies are actually stronger than Jewish bodies. So, what what's the purpose of kosher? Um, then it says like this at the very end, <laughs> the very end of this parsha. Rashi says something, the Torah says something interesting. I am God who makes you holy. You shall not you should not make yourself disgusting by eating creepy, creepy crawling creatures, and you should not defile yourselves with them. For I am Hashem who makes you holy. You shall sanctify yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And don't Make yourself impure through different animals. Kiani Hashem, because I am Hashem, Hamala Eschem, who lifted you up, Me'eretz Mitzrayim, from the land of Egypt, to be your God. And you should be holy in front of me. And Rashi says, just like I'm holy, God says, so too you have to be holy. So we kind of have to understand the idea of Kedusha. The word holiness in Hebrew, kadosh. What does it mean? God's holy, therefore we have to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? And then Rashi says, what does it mean? Hamala that God took us out of Egypt, lifted us up out of Egypt. Rashi says, I took you out of Egypt in order that you should do my mitzvahs. But had it just been this mitzvah, the mitzvah of keeping kosher, that would have been enough reason to take you out of Egypt. Why? Because the word took you out, lifted you out of Egypt, means to elevate. Because it's through the, the keeping of kosher that you elevate yourself. So once again, we see this very lofty importance of kosher. How does keeping kosher elevate yourself? Okay, so now. Let's begin. Let's talk about the signs of kosher. Okay? Anyone. What do we have? What makes... What are the signs of kosher? Who wants to go first? What do you mean by signs? What animals... How do we know what animals are kosher? Or what birds are kosher? Or what fish are kosher? I think about the... There's something. I forget how... I forget the wording. Okay. Anyone want to uh, help? They don't. Uh, what does that mean? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, first of all, let's go in order of the actual Torah itself. So, the Torah begins with animals, mammals. What mammals are we allowed to eat? So one thing is they have to have, the Torah says two things. Shasa, that they are shosas, mafresis parsa, vashosas shasa. That they have a split hoof. That's number one. And number two, that they're malagera, that they chew their cud. So there are two signs of a kosher animal. They have split hoofs, and they chew their cud, which means uh, certain animals have a have a certain a number of stomachs that they eat grass. These are grass-chewing animals. They eat grass, they chew it up, then it goes down into their stomach, it gets semi-digested, and then they cough it back up and chew it again, and then it goes down to another stomach. So what animals are in that category? Of animals with split hooves that chew their cud. Cows are definitely in that category. What else? 
So cows are kosher. Sheep are kosher. <laughs> Anyone else? What else? Bison, buffalo. What else? Giraffes, kosher. That's right. Giraffes are kosher. What else? Goats. Are goats kosher? Goats are kosher. What about deer? Are deer kosher? Deer are kosher. Including everything else in that family. Gazelles, antelopes, um, anything of that family. <clears throat> and what about... Um, what about... What about camels? Uh, camels are not kosher. No, not because they carry water. Do camels chew their cud? Yes, they do. So why are camels not kosher? That's right. Camels don't have split hooves. Camels have toes. Okay, hold on one second. Okay, guys, I have here a book called Signs of Life. See that book? Written by a guy that I know in Israel whose name is Simcha. Postolsky. And this book was translated and edited by yours truly. That's hard to see. Okay, so this is actually one of the biggest projects that I worked on when I was a writer before I came back to America. And um, it was a lot of fun to work on this book. It goes through the signs of kosher animals. And uh, it was really a lot of fun. The problem was that my Hebrew wasn't great. So some of the translations are wrong. <laughs> but um, hopefully it's been re-edited since then. <laughs> it's actually an amazing story. I wrote an article about, <clears throat> about the author who was a, um, a non-religious Israeli who actually grew up, I think, on a kibbutz. And he came to America and he actually was like a rancher in America. And he was really like a cowboy. And in living in like Texas and California, and at some point in his life, he became religious. And he moved back to Israel. And he became a photographer and he studied, obviously. And he, this became a topic that he wanted to master in Jewish law. And he became an expert on the signs of kosher animals. And he went all around Israel and photographed different animals for the purpose of this book. And he spent many, many years of life working on it. It's really, really amazing. Um, <clears throat> it's a great book. I, I actually recommend it for anyone who is interested in this topic. Signs of Life. It can actually be purchased in most Jewish bookstores as well as online. Um, <clears throat> he writes here that when he started writing this book, he actually went to visit Rav Chaim Kenievsky, who is the great, um, really the greatest Torah scholar of our generation who just passed away on, um, on Friday, Thursday. Uh, when was Purim? Purim was on Thursday. So on Friday, he passed away on Friday in Israel. So it was really a tragic tragedy for the Jewish people. This was a giant of Judaism. I'm going to say, tell you another story about him um, tonight related to this, but I just looked now in his book, he says he visited Rav Chaim Kanievsky to get a blessing for this book. When he finished looking through the material, he got up from his wheelchair and grasped my hand tightly, and he said, it is up to you to publish this book. Whoever does so will surely be successful. Um, and 
he said many years later he he went back to visit Rukhaim Kanyaski to bring him a copy of the book. And he was overjoyed to receive a copy. And after looking through it patiently, he smiled and placed it on the shelf amongst the books that he learns regularly. And a few years later, um, Simcha went back to get a blessing from Rukhaim. And as he walked in, he smiled and said, your book is still on my shelf. So it's really, really an amazing accomplishment. And, and no one ever really studied it as much as he did. So... What? Let's just go through a few other animals that you might not be familiar with. Um, what about horses? Are, 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 are horses kosher? Why not? No split hoof. Horses do not have a split hoof. And finally, the Torah lists a few other things explicitly when it talks about non-kosher animals. One of them is the camel that we've mentioned. Another is the hyrax or rock badger and rabbit. Why would those animals be listed? Do they have split hooves? No. So why would the Torah explicitly mention a hyrax and a rock, bad, rock badger or a, and a rabbit? Answer is, is it, yeah? No, no need to mention them if they don't have split hooves and chew their cud. The answer is they have one of the two. The camel is mentioned because it chews its cud. The rabbit and the rock badger or hyrax also is constantly chewing. So it looks like it is chewing its cud. And in, in some show, some scientists have shown that they actually, um, they actually do chew their cud. They, they re-eat food that was previously ingested. Another famous animal that's mentioned is the pig. Why, why is a pig not kosher? Anyone? <laughs> no? Look at the hooves. Plagues do have split hooves, but they do not chew their cud. Okay, so that's it for for um, for animals. Let's go now to the next species in the Torah. After we go through animals, we go to fish. What are the laws of kosher for fish? What are the signs of a kosher fish? Does anyone know? Not shellfish. Why not shellfish? Anyone else? The laws of a kosher fish are that they have, drum roll, ladies and gentlemen, fins and scales. Fins and scales. Now, what does, what has fins and scales? Basically, most fish. In fact, the Talmud says that anything that has scales also has fins. Any fish that has scales also has fins. What animals, what fish don't have fins and scales? Shellfish. Shellfish. Lap lobsters. Crabs for you Marylanders. Sorry to say. What else? Octopus. Jellyfish. Snails. Escargot. Sorry for all the French people. What? Okay, for sure. Water-based mammals, right? Don't have scales. And what else? We're not up to reptiles yet. We'll get there. What reptiles are kosher? None. No kosher reptiles. Um, no kosher reptiles. The only kosher animals, land animals. We'll, we'll, we'll let's finish. We'll finish. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. Another fish that's not kosher is who's the scariest fish in the ocean? Sharks. 
Sharks don't have scales. Also, eels. Every shark has an eel that, like, is their buddy, you know, to help them do mischief under the sea. Um, and that's basically, uh, oh, catfish don't have scales. That's basically, that's basically it, okay, for fish. Moving right along. Birds. What birds are kosher? Turkey's a good question, actually. But let's keep things simple. Yes, chicken and turkey. What else? Okay, good. Empire, chicken, and turkey. I'll give you a hint. The Torah doesn't tell us what birds are kosher. You know what the Torah tells us? What birds aren't kosher. And all the rest are. So what birds aren't kosher? There's a list. That's right. An ostrich is not kosher. Now, I could read you a lot of these, and you probably won't know what they are, and I also don't know what they are. But I'm going to give you a general category. Birds of prey are not kosher. Griffin, eagle, vulture, raven, also scavenger birds, um, hawk, owl, stork, heron, and uh, ostrich is in the, the category. And, a, and buzzard and a few others. So other than the birds that are listed here, every other bird is kosher. And the Talmud gives us what? Pigeons are 100% kosher. Why? <laughs> no, you don't want to eat a, you don't want to eat a New York City pigeon, but you certainly wouldn't mind eating a healthy pigeon, because what what species do pigeons come from? Pigeons are doves, and doves are actually one of the one of the animals that are sacrificed in the temple, and a hundred percent is edible, just not in New York City. <laughs> so, um, the the Talmud gives us a sign to know if an animal is a bird is kosher or not. If it tramples its prey, if it is very aggressive with its prey, and it says if it if it if it smashes it, so then it's a non-kosher bird. And how, however, we 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 say nowadays that you have to have a tradition in order to eat a bird. You have to have a tradition going all the way back thousands of years that this bird is kosher. So turkey was a question. Why? Why was turkey a questionable bird? Where do turkeys come from? It's from the New World. It's a North American bird. It's impossible for there to be a tradition on turkey. So why do we eat turkeys? The answer is because there are those that were able to show that a turkey is directly related to birds that we had in 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 the middle east and in europe but there are I, I believe there are some people that will not eat turkey okay now what's next you mentioned reptiles so the torah uh, makes it clear that reptiles are not kosher what about bugs any kosher bugs Anyone? I mean, how gross can you get, right? Like, we don't eat bugs. The answer is yes, there are certain types of kosher insects. What types? So, throughout the Middle East, and actually throughout the world, insects are eaten. They're a tremendous source of protein. Chocolate covered ants, beetles, 
Yum. So the only insects that are edible, that are kosher, according to the Torah, are a certain species of locusts, grasshoppers. And they are certainly eaten until today in Middle Eastern countries. Certain ones are kosher. Many are not. And um, we, Ashkenazi Jews, have lost the tradition of which locusts are kosher and which are not. And therefore, we do not eat locusts. You guys are all off the hook. Thank God. But Yemenite Jews who have been living in Yemen for thousands of years in country where locusts are eaten still to this day have a tradition of which locusts are kosher and which are not, and they are still allowed to eat locusts. I have heard that they taste kind of like a mix between popcorn and fish. Yum. Fish-flavored popcorn. Mm-mm-mm. Got to get me some of that. <laughs> All right. So I'll tell you an amazing story about locusts. We just mentioned a few minutes ago the great Rabbi Rav Chaim Kenevsky, who just passed away. So Rav Chaim was one of the world experts on the laws of kosher locusts. And he wrote a book about it. The, the story goes about Rav Chaim that Rav Chaim finished the entire... So for those of you who know, there's something called Daf Yomi, where the, there's a, 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 um, a program throughout the world to finish the Talmud, the entire Talmud, um, in seven years. And if, that's, that's if you learn one page a day. If you learn one page of Talmud every day, you finish the Talmud in seven years. So Rav Chaim used to finish the Talmud every single year. That means he learned seven pages of Talmud every day. But not only did he finish the entire Talmud every year, he also finished another version of the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Yushalmi. He also finished every, day, every year. Not only that, but he also finished the entire Tanakh, the entire Bible, the 24 books of the Bible. Not only that, he also finished the entire Zohar, Book of Kabbalah. Not only that, but he also finished the entire Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch. Not only that, but he also finished all of these things that we mentioned with numerous commentaries from the Mid Middle Ages until the present time. And not only that, but he also finished numerous other books every single year. He would make a seum, a, 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 a ceremony and, and, a, and a celebration when he completed the Talmud. And he used to complete it every year right before Passover. Every year. The entire Torah. Not just the books, five books, most the entire compilation of Judaism. He was literally the person in the generation who knew all of Judaism. It is like, it's an accomplishment that we can't even understand. His time was so precious. We're talking about a person who would wake up early in the morning before dawn and study the entire day until late, late at night. In addition to all that learning, he first of all made sure to eat two meals a day with his wife. He would not eat unless his wife was with him. So he made sure to give his wife his full attention two, two times a day, sit down and eat together. In addition to that, over the past 30 years, he met with hundreds of people a day. His time was so precious to him that although he used to sit and meet with people for hours and give them his full attention, but when someone would come for a blessing, the customary blessing is bracha v'hatzlacha, which means blessing and success. But in order to save time, he would say buha, which is like an acronym for blessing bracha v'hatzlacha. So he made up the word buha. So he used to say buha to hundreds of people a day. And a, rab, a great rabbi here in Baltimore calculated that he saved about like two seconds from saying buha versus bracha v'hatzlacha. But when you calculate that two seconds over hundreds of people a day, hundreds, thousands of people a year, he saved himself many, many hours of time. And those hours of time to him were more precious than we can ever understand because he used every moment of his life. 
to, to, to work on himself and to study. So Reb Chaim was a unique person. There was no one else like him in this generation. Reb Chaim was writing, so he used to make a siyum on the entire Torah every Erev Pesach, right before Passover. But on this year, this year is a leap year, which means there are 13 months instead of 12 months. So on years that were leap years, he would finish the Torah, the, the entire Torah, one month early before Passover. So then he would make it on, on Purim. He would make the entire, the, the completion of the entire Torah on Purim. So what did he do with his extra month? So in his extra month, he would write a book. So every time there was a leap year, he would write another book on Jewish law. He, this year, he finished the entire Torah the day before he passed away. How crazy is that? How crazy? He finished his life's work. Unbelievable. So, so one of the books that he wrote was on the laws of kosher grasshoppers. Now, listen to this. There was a certain sign that he couldn't figure out. Something that it said in the Talmud and in the commentaries, it's called Jewish law, that he couldn't figure out exactly what it was talking about. And he he was right in that moment writing about that sign, and he and he and he just got stuck on something. And just then he looked up and a grasshopper landed on his window. So it was the exact type of grasshopper that he was needed for his project. And he was able to write about it. Someone came to him and said, That story is impossible. I don't believe it. The story spread, <laughs> of course. Everyone found out about this story. And someone came to him was very upset. He said, I don't believe it. He said, first of all, it's not true. I'm an expert in grasshoppers, a professor from college or something. He said, That's, you, you're wrong. That sign is incorrect. The guy came to his, to his house to argue with him. And Reb Chaim said, no, I'm, I saw it with my own eyes. And the guy said, it's not true. And Reb Chaim said, I'll prove it to you. Just then, grasshopper landed on his windowsill again. They said, there, look, you can see for yourself. <laughs> so another story I've heard about Rukhaim is, is that um, somebody, there was another great rabbi in, in B'nai Brak, Israel, where, where Rukhaim lived, who passed away a few years ago. His name was Aaron Leib Steinman, also a great, great rabbi. One time a group of students um, from South America came to meet with him. And after he was leaving, he called over the madrich, the counselor, and he said, one of those students doesn't have a circumcision. And uh, he said, how do you know? He said, I could feel it. I could sense that one of these students is not circumcised. And they looked and they found out, they, they asked the students, they found out it was true. So someone told this story to Rav Chaim, and Rav Chaim said, can't everyone see that? Isn't that something everyone can do? Like, can't everyone see holiness with their own eyes? So... That's our plan. Okay. Back to our regular scheduled program. What about what's after insects? That's it. Okay, we're done. So what do all these things have in common, my friends? What can we learn about the laws of kosher animals? Why in the world does God care what I eat? And the answer is, first of all, we need a little bit of background. Does the Torah want us eating meat? Is meat a good thing to eat or a bad thing to eat? Survey says, yes. Meat is a good thing to eat and a bad thing to eat. What do I mean by that? What was God's original intention when he created human beings? So let's find out. What does the Torah say? Adam was created and placed in the Garden of Eden. And what was Adam told to eat? Should I read it for you? Vegetables and plants. Adam was a vegetarian. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Behold, I have given you every seed-bearing herb, which is upon the surface of the entire earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, it, is, it will be yours for food. 
So Adam was created in as a vegetarian. So what changed? Why are we allowed to eat meat if Adam was told to be a vegetarian? So do you know? Good, good guess, good guess. But before, way before the Jewish people in the desert, human beings were now permitted to eat meat. At the time of Noah, Noah comes out of the flood. He gets out of the ark. And who did he have with him in the ark? All the animals. When he comes out of the ark, God says, now you are permitted to eat animals. I've now given you the animals to eat. Why? So, saved all the animals, so now you're going to eat them. Seems counterintuitive, but maybe it's not counterintuitive. Can anyone think of a reason why it's not counterintuitive? Noah essentially becomes the father of, of the animal kingdom. He essentially, by saving all those animals, became an owner over those animals. And now he has permission to utilize that which essentially belongs to him. So that's, that's one explanation, that Adam, by saving those animals, he essentially acquired them. And now, they're, now they are in his domain, dominion. But another explanation I heard, which I thought was quite profound, is that in the generation of, of Noah, people began to lose their divine stature with which they were created. Adam was created to rule over the animal kingdom, to essentially um, uplift the animal kingdom. But as generations went on, people began to fall from their lofty spiritual level, uh, of course, beginning with Adam's fall in the garden. And people began to do animal-like things. People began to kill each other, like animals do. People began to engage in all sorts of um, this immoral acts with each other sexually. And, and in the time of the flood, they actually started to engage in sexual acts with animals, bestiality. Um, so what's the message of saying that you're allowed to eat animals? What is that telling Adam about his human beings, about their status vis-a-vis -vis animals? Excellent. It's telling us you're above animals. Don't be an animal. Don't act like an animal. You have an obligation to be higher than an animal, to control your animal nature. So at that point in history, it became permitted to eat animals to remind people that you are not animals. And as society begins to lose its moral compass, animals and humans become equal and that's a very scary thing because humans are not animals and animals are not humans All right there's a story that's I've, I've heard quoted in jewish sources of a priest in the middle ages who trained cats to walk on two legs and he said to <coughs> He had a bet with a rabbi, great rabbi. He said, I, I, I've trained animals to do everything human beings can do. There's no difference between my animals and people. And the rabbi said, okay, I'll prove you wrong. And they, went, they had a debate. And the priest brought out these cats who were literally carrying trays. Like they were like waiters who were serving food around the room. And it was like very impressive. And the rabbi had in his pocket a little box. And he opened up the box and a mouse jumped out. 
and suddenly the cats threw their dishes and ran after the mouse. So the rabbi said, you can, you can train a cat to walk, but you can't train a cat not to like mice. That there's an instinct that you can't get rid of. So human beings have the ability to transcend their animal nature. We have the ability to control ourselves. So if you think about it, what's the number two areas that we have the ability to show that we are not animals? What are the two strongest drives, animalistic drives that we have? Mike, what do you say? Yeah, food and sex, two strongest drives that a human being has. So in these two areas, we have the ability to become holy. If you open up Maimonides' Code of Jewish Law, to the chapter on holiness, the word Kedusha, which means holiness, he talks about two things, food and sex. Those are the two areas that we have the ability to show that we're not animals. How do we do that? Very simple. Animals, when it comes to their physical drives, can only do what they want. Right? You ever hear me say um, definition of free will? What's the definition of free will? Do what you want when you want. Definition of free will, do what you want when you want. Answer is, that's not free will. That's slavery. Who does what they want when they want? Animals. Animals do what they want when they want. Human beings are the only beings that have the ability to not do what they want when they want. That's free will. Free will is utilizing your mind over your matter to control your body, to not do what you want. An animal wants to eat whatever it wants to eat. A human being has the ability to say, no, I choose not to eat that and yes to eat that. On the most basic level, keeping kosher is simply a statement that I am not an animal. I can eat animals, which shows me that I'm not an animal, and I choose what I eat. I don't eat whatever I want. I eat what's right. I have to think before I eat. I don't just stuff it into my mouth. There's a story in the um, in Tanakh that King David was searching for soldiers to go with him in his army. And he did a test. He took people to a river to drink. And whoever, they were very thirsty. Whoever just stuck their head in the water and drank like a dog, he was not interested in having them in his army. He said, lift the food up to you. Don't lower yourself down to the food. That's uniquely human, that we have the ability to eat with mindfulness, eat with intention, and to choose not to eat sometimes. An animal can only eat what it's programmed to eat or what it's trained to eat. It can't choose to become a vegetarian. It can't choose not to kill something that's standing in front of it when it's hungry. We have the ability to, to make those choices. So that's on the very basic level. Now, jumping it up another notch, what do all these animals have in common that we don't eat? Let's go, let's review it again. Chews its cud, split hooves, fins and scales, birds that don't trample, and, and claw at their prey. And let's not talk about grasshoppers because I don't know anything about that. What do all those animals have in common? So let's break it down. Split hooves as opposed to what? As opposed to unsplit hooves or claws. So what do animals with claws do? They attack. So we don't eat predators. We don't eat lions, tigers, or bears. Oh my. 
right? No, no predators. And what about hooved animals that don't have a split hoof? So it happens to be that that the that the split hoof, that the non-split hoof of a horse or a donkey is much more powerful than a split hoof. A split hoof is a weaker animal, typically speaking, even though cows are extremely strong and buffaloes are extremely strong, but it's it's a it's a less uh it's a less um like it's more of a pacing grazing animal as opposed to a running animal, I believe. Chewing cud means that it has a very primitive stomach. It means it doesn't eat what? Doesn't eat meat. And it only eats basic grass. So we're eating mammals that are very, very tame. Says the Ramban and others, the simple rule behind keeping kosher is you are what you eat. If you eat an aggressive animal, a predator, you bring into you the energy of aggression. Therefore, we eat animals that are basic, that are, that are timid, that are gentle animals for the most part. And, and I, again, I'm not, you know, I guess cows, although bulls can be quite aggressive, for the most part, they are not if they aren't like edged on, right? So we are what you eat. The chewing your cud, the Vilna Gon says, is a sign of being happy with what you have. Because they just keep eating the same thing over and over and over again. Not just the same menu, but the actual food. They eat the same food over and over again. It's like, Mom, what's for supper? Meatloaf. But we had meatloaf last night. Yeah, but you're going to eat the same meatloaf. Not only is it meatloaf again, but it's the same meatloaf. Cough it up and eat it again. It's a sign of being happy with what you have. Says the Vilna Gon that this is a sign that we are that we are content with what we have. When it comes to fish, we don't eat sharks, aggressive predators, although all fish eat other fish. And we don't eat scavengers, the shellfish, who are basically the garbage men of the ocean. And uh, of course, not so clean. That's not the real reason we don't do it, but it's, uh, they're also quite, we're, we're, we, don't, we don't wanna be scavengers. We don't want to bring that energy into us. Same thing when it comes to birds. We don't eat the birds of prey, the eagles, the hawks, the ospreys. And we also don't eat the, the garbage men of the bird world, which is the, uh, the vultures and the carrion eaters. Right? So again, the same, the same idea. So what you eat has an influence on you and it's it's brought down that keeping kosher helps to purify you from being too physical. Eating meat in general makes you physical. And it was not part of God's original plan. Time changed, it became permitted. But you have to still temper it. We don't want to eat everything. We want to be selective in what we eat. That it should we shouldn't bring that animalistic drive more into ourselves and bring out our own animalistic drive that way by eating like an animal, right? You want to eat like, an, like a human, not like an animal. And finally, um, we also don't eat blood because it says that blood is the soul of the animal is in the blood. There's a certain type of part of the soul called nephish, which exists in the blood. We don't want to bring in more of that animalisticness into us. So kosher meat, is salted and drained to remove the blood. And um, there are those also that say it, that makes it healthier, but that's again, not the reason for keeping kosher. And last point that I wanna make is if we venture a little bit into the realm of Kabbalah is, I asked at the beginning, is eating meat good or bad? And I said, yes, it's not ideal. The Talmud warns that a person who is not a Talmud scholar who's not a Torah scholar, person who's not on a spirit, high spiritual level should not should never eat meat, so Talmud says. 
because the meat will pull you down if you don't eat it with proper intentions. There are those um, uh, uh, Sadiqim, righteous people who would only eat meat on Shabbos because on Shabbos you have the ability to focus more on what you're doing and do it more for the right reasons. Meat has within it, everything has within it in this world, sparks of holiness. There's aspects of spirituality, godliness, and everything. And when we use something for the right purposes, we lift up the holy sparks that are hidden in that thing. When you eat something, you're lifting up the energy and the spirituality in that thing and making it part of you. You're literally taking inanimate nature, inanimate objects, and making it human. You eat a vegetable, you're taking all the grass, all the sunlight, and all the minerals that went into that vegetable, you're taking it into, you're taking something that was not human, and you're making it human. Now when you do a mitzvah, you're lifting up, when you do something good, spiritual, you're lifting up all the energy that was in that physicality and turning it into spirituality. When you eat an animal, you not only eat the animal, but you eat all the grass and all the sunlight and all the water and all the minerals that went into that, the food that that animal ate, and then the animal itself. You literally have within you the entire world. Now, that's a huge responsibility. If you take that energy and you go and do a mitzvah, or you learn Torah, you do something spiritual, you give charity, or you do something with that energy that's good, you've lifted up the entire world. But if you then take that energy and you do something bad, you've just brought down the entire world. So you have to eat responsibly. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed and I got to run, but uh, I want to wish everyone a beautiful Shabbos. You should enjoy the food of this Shabbos, but you should eat with the right intention, which is to be healthy, number one, number two, to have energy that you should do misses, and number three, to actually connect and lift up the spirituality that's hidden within the food that we eat, that eating is the holiest thing one of the holiest things that we can do in this world. And that's why on, on Shabbos, Hasidim go to something called a tish, not to be confused with what you're sitting on, which means a table in Yiddish, where, to where they would go and they would watch the Rebbe, the master, eat. And of course they would sing and he would say words of Torah, but the main focus was to watch how a righteous person engages in physicality. And that's an amazing thing. And... Um, Next week's Parsha, we talk about, about sexuality and how is a righteous person supposed to engage in the other most physical desire. There's actually a story in the Talmud of a rabbi who hid under his Rebbe's bed in his bedroom to see how a righteous person engages in that aspect of physicality. If you want to talk about that, stay tuned. We might go there next week. Guys, it's been a pleasure having you today. And I uh, hope you enjoyed today's discussion. That was really the meat and potatoes of Judaism. <laughs>